Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Top Docs Radio. Brought to you by Hyperbaric Physicians of Georgia, a comprehensive wound resolution and UHMS accredited hyperbaric medicine practice with four offices to serve you. Find us on the web at www.hbomdga.com. Facebook and Twitter at HBOMDGA. Good afternoon, everyone. It's your host, C.W. Hall, here on Top Docs Radio. Thank you for making us a part of your day yet again today. I'm joined in studio, as always, producer extraordinaire, Krista Baruti. Hey, C.W. I was going to say on this sunny day, but we don't have windows in here. I'm not we really just have sure to have faith. what outside looks like right now. <laughs> is it, is it, it could it's be freezing. It's sunny in here. There could be some serious meteorologic disaster going on outside, and we wouldn't know that. Radio stops for nothing. <laughs> Who do we have in the studio today? Well, I'm really uh, pleased to have uh, Dr. Robert Albin. He's uh, one of the physicians that uh, specializes in sleep medicine, uh, part of the Northside Hospital uh, physicians that uh, comprise their team. And uh, it's one of our ongoing series that we've had with uh, Northside Hospital. I've certainly been appreciative of them collaborating with us on the show, introducing us to a lot of physicians. We've had a bunch of great discussions on things like a number of different cancers and uh, uh, joint replacement, you name it. They've been able to uh, help us introduce a lot of the physicians in the community uh, to uh, some experts in their fields. And today would be yet another one of those talking about sleep disorders. And uh, getting ready for the show, began to realize I didn't know just how many people are dealing with sleep disorders. So thank you, Dr. Albin, for taking time out of your busy day to come and share some information with us about it. Well, thank you for inviting me, and it's a pleasure to be here. 35 or 40% of the people in the country have sleep disorders. Probably as a conservative estimate, that's correct. And when you think about how important quality sleep is to appropriate functioning during the daytime, whether it's personal interactions, our job, you can understand the incredible impact poor sleep would have upon uh, individuals who are suffering from this. So tell me about some of your background. How did you land on sleep? How did I land on sleep? Um, I came by it, I guess, circuitously. I'm uh, originally trained in internal medicine, pulmonary diseases, and critical care. And I practiced those in private practice setting for quite some time. In the late 1990s, sleep medicine was catching on more. Uh, Although I wasn't formally trained in sleep medicine, pulmonologists became involved in the sleep field because there are certain diseases associated with sleep pathology that involved irregular breathing. Because of that, we became interested, and in the late 1990s, I studied and passed the boards for sleep medicine. So I've been doing this now for approximately 15 years in addition to doing my full-time work as a pulmonologist as well. I don't know if folks really fully appreciate the number of different problems you can develop downstream from having sleep disorders of a variety of types, whether it's some kind of obstructive process or whatever the cause may end up being that interrupts your sleep uh, cycles. A number of different problems can come from that that are you know, pretty serious. There are a lot of consequences of not getting a good night's sleep. These range from medical ones that we can detect easily, such as hypertension, coronary disease, other cardiovascular complications such as stroke, to some that are less subtle but no less important, such as impaired judgment, 
mood alteration, depression, and the impaired judgment is probably something that really shouldn't be overlooked, but it may be underestimated. It's, it's just very from Chernobyl to Three Mile Island to there was a, um, a New York ferry that crashed into a dock. Right, yeah. Um, not, not, not too awful long there ago. There was the plane crash in upstate New York State where the plane went down. All of those were attributed to sleep, either lack of sleep or intrinsic sleep pathology that hadn't been uh, identified. So all of those disasters were really as a result of poor sleep. So there's a lot of spillover into daytime functioning that really can take a terrible toll if untreated. Is there a typical set of... What are the usual causes? What are the usual suspects that you end up dealing with? I, I, I know that a lot of people are aware of, you know, you can have some uh, physical, uh, you know, just the way your body is made or whether you're, you know, potentially overweight, for example. I know that can be a cause. But to what, what are the, are there some usual things you end up finding kind of create the problem for most people? I think you're alluding to a lot of the patients who we see with sleep apnea. Certainly a lot of that population is carrying excess weight. And so that may be a tip-off as is an enlarged neck circumference. And then when we do a head and neck examination looking at the opening in the back of the throat, we get a tip-off there. That being said, there are individuals who I see who are extraordinarily trim who also have sleep apnea. So it's not mm -hmm. simply just a weight issue. Um, other things that are tip-offs to pathology, it's certainly well recognized that there are certain cardiac arrhythmias that are associated with untreated sleep pathology. And, and there's also a dictum that individuals with refractory hypertension should probably be screened for underlying sleep disorder as well. Now, is the hypertension, when we talked about that being kind of something that can come out of having a sleep disorder, is that some sort of a a hormonal stress response that, that is being created by the kind of the constant ineffective sleep patterns and now that starts to kind of amp up your blood pressure a little bit in time? Is that what would cause that? That's an interesting secondary thing to come on is having high blood pressure because you're not sleeping well. So if you think about what happens, and, and we'll confine remarks more towards sleep apnea as far as this topic, during the course of the night, people uh, or patients have episodes where they obstruct their airway and there is no airflow. Their oxygen level drops. And one of the physiologic responses is to increase resistance through the pulmonary arteries, which is pulmonary hypertension. And there's also a systemic sympathetic response that increases the resistance through our peripheral vessels, leading to hypertension. Normally, when you go to sleep at night, your blood pressure should drop approximately 15% from its daytime baseline. Mm -hmm. Individuals with sleep apnea frequently don't see a reduction in their blood pressure, may see it go up at night. So we think that this repetitive insult, where there's constriction, relaxation, constriction, relaxation, leads to the eventual development of fixed increased resistance in the blood mm -hmm. vessels, and sustained daytime hypertension then becomes manifest. Mm. And does that, when, it, when someone develops that kind of hypertension, is it less responsive to medication treatment like someone who may develop hypertension from other means? 
Typically, it's the other way around. So typically, we see a lot of these people referred to us because they have refractory, medically refractory hypertension. And so the question is raised, could they have this underlying sleep pathology that might be contributing to the factor? We then, on the flip side, sometimes realize that blood pressure becomes much easier to manage with successful treatment of the underlying sleep disorder. So one of the things we you, you clarified a couple of times as it relates to sleep apnea that's caused by some sort of obstructive process, some sort of I'm either overweight or I've got physiology, you know, the way my body is made, I obstruct things and I end up having to wake myself up because I'm, I'm blocking off. But how, how many folks end up having an issue that's not related so much to a physical obstruction as perhaps some sort of uh, like a brain type related function or, or some other some other mechanism that's waking me up in the middle of the night. I've seen restless legs, for example, that might possibly be caused by uh, venous disease, for example, that the legs kind of jerk around and wake you up and interrupt your sleep patterns, things like that. What, what are the other causes that someone may not even really think about? In terms of other sleep disorders that we right. see besides sleep apnea. Yeah. So there, there's really a multitude of sleep pathology that exists out there. Certainly, there's a lot of press towards sleep apnea. Yeah. And the other one that obviously is huge is a complaint of insomnia. Individuals yes. stating, I can't fall asleep, I can't remain asleep. Yeah, my wife deals with the latter. She, she's somebody that can readily go to sleep at a regular time, four hours in, two, two to three o'clock in the morning, will wake up and very often has a very difficult time to go back to bed. And she's not a late caffeine consumer, things like that. So it's kind of interesting. Right. And, and you probably are aware of the consequences when she doesn't have a good night's sleep. <laughs> never, so, never. Right. So, uh, you know, so then those things that we talked about, secondary mood disorder, judgment, fuzzy thinking, all those, I mean, there's obviously very serious consequences to not being able to either fall asleep, getting enough hours of sleep, or staying asleep at night. You mentioned restless leg syndrome. We see that. Um, we see things such as narcolepsy, individuals with, you know, tremendous sleepiness, what we refer to as hypersomnolence. Yeah, they can't even resist it if they try. They're right, not, they're not sleep even attacks. It's going to happen, yeah. Right, exactly that. Um, there are other unusual things. We see people who have um, circad what are called circadian rhythm disorders. Their clock is off relative to the clock. So mm -hmm. basically, they may go to bed too early and wake up too early. Or if you're a college student, you go to bed at four in the morning, you wake up at noon. And when you get a job or you have Monday morning class at eight o'clock, then that becomes reset. difficult. Right. Yeah. You can't reset that. So those are circadian rhythm disorders. And there are a lot of other disease states that we look at. Um, there are issues that occur just only in REM sleep. And so we have lots of different things that we uh, hear about and that we have to try to decipher. We're talking with sleep medicine specialist Dr. Robert Albin here on Top Docs Radio, and I know that uh, Northside Hospital, their 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 sleep study center, is one that was one of the first fully accredited sleep disorder centers in the city. Um, talk about how you get down to determining the cause. Does somebody actually have is sleep their problem, and what its cause is? Whenever it's determined, yes, you have a sleep disorder, and it's X. Sleep medicine parallels good medicine, and the basis of evaluating sleep pathology is still the same formula, which is a good history and a good physical examination. So we start really at that point. Following understanding of what the patient's complaint is and an evaluation, 
lets us decide whether or not additional testing may be indicated. For conditions such as insomnia that we just touched on briefly, frequently if individuals don't fall asleep at home and don't stay asleep at home, they tend not to sleep very well when they're hooked up to electrodes in a strange room <laughs> with strangers in there in a new bed, et cetera. Yeah. So they don't do well. So there's not a lot of indication right off the bat for doing a sleep study on someone with insomnia. However, oh. in a great many of the other conditions, a sleep study or what we refer to as a polysomnogram is extraordinarily useful and provides us with a wealth of information. What kind of things does it show you? The sleep study is... If you were to look at a printout, and what we get is a digital page that has a multitude of electronic channels that we monitor, from brain waves to eye movements, chest excursion, abdominal excursion, oxygen, your pulse, your limb movements, snoring, position. We get a, all that information. And basically what we're trying to look at is the integration of all this information into pattern recognition. And those patterns allow us to evaluate and to decide whether a sleep disorder is present. Now, it's not infrequent that we find utility with the sleep study to actually exclude symptoms. Part of our job on the flip side is we may have a lot of individuals who come in with a lot of complaints, fatigue, no energy, and they don't have sleep pathology. And so that's part of what the sleep study is useful for as well as to exclude a diagnosis. There are a lot of a lot of conditions that tend to make people, quote, tired. And I think one mm-hmm. of the things that I really strive for when I see a new patient is to understand if people are tired because they're sleepy or tired because they get up and go, got up and went, right. and they have no energy, they're extraordinarily fatigued. That's really two different issues. Mm-hmm. If you tell me that I can't stay awake there may well be a sleep issue there. If you're telling me I just simply have to lie down because I have no energy and no stamina during the day, then Maybe there's a whole different... iron or something. Yeah, there's a whole <laughs> different uh, differential diagnosis to consider. So the sleep studies frequently help us to, you know, if we have a normal study, then we have a normal study. We don't find evidence for sleep pathology. I'm curious as it relates to folks that come to you that are telling you about you know, some of these types of things. I'm I'm tired all the time. I have a hard time going to bed or going to sleep and staying asleep, those sorts of things. How often do you find that there are fairly straightforward, not necessarily significant physical issues? Maybe it's that they – it turns out that they have a a, a double shot of cappuccino every afternoon. i got to stop by and have my Starbucks on the way home. You know, behavioral things that you find, either dietary or something like that, um, that – interrupt your sleep for sure and give you a sleep disorder, if you will, just because you don't have effective sleep patterns, but it ends up being something that, oh, this is something you can change fairly straightforward, fairly easily, and you're better. Now, now you'll go to sleep. It's a good question, and, and I think I can answer that on a couple of different levels. One of the things that I think is really helpful for me is when a spouse, significant other, family member, or someone else comes with the patient to the evaluation. Mm -hmm. Because frequently what the patient will tell you and what the other person tells you are diametrically opposite. (laughs) So the person comes in and tells you, hey doc, I need you to evaluate me for X, Y, and Z. And I see the eyes rolling on the other individual in the room. And when I ask them, well, what do you think? And they tell me A, B, and C, then I know that 
you know, we have sort of a, a difference of things. By the time they come and see me, a lot of patients have sort of sorted out the caffeine issue. Mm. They've sorted out, um, I'm exercising too late. They're so, they've sorted out, well, you know, I'm answering emails till one in the morning and then I'm so worked up I can't go to sleep. A lot of them have come to that already. Mm-hmm. So, but one of the things that, I, that really interferes with sleep that they haven't gotten a grip on, and which really occupies a lot of what we see in sleep medicine, are sort of mood issues. And that can range from anxiety, and frequently it includes uh, you know, mood disorders such as depression. Mm-hmm. But anxiety is huge, especially in individuals who are complaining of difficulty falling asleep or who are frequently awakening at night. And it's, that's something that oftentimes the patient doesn't necessarily have great insight to, although the other individual who's in the room will be nodding their head as I'm asking certain questions and acknowledging, you're right, doc, that's exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Do you, in, in that vein, I mean, do you, are there some common, I, I hear this a lot. Well, uh, you know, one of my favorites is, I haven't slept for 20 days now, doc. You don't understand what it's like. I haven't slept for 20 days. <laughs> And so I look at them, I said, well, are you tired right now? And they'll say, no, no, but, but I'm going to get really tired later on today, and then I'm not going to sleep at all at night. Um, that's, that's not all that unusual to actually hear that. And, um, you know, obviously there's a lot of misperception there, and that's one of the issues that we deal with not infrequently in the sleep world is sleep state misperception. I think that I'm awake all night, or I think I'm sleeping too much, or I think I don't get any sleep. And in fact, that's not the case at all. And so that, to me, is one of the actual better uses or an important use of a sleep study is people come in and we do a sleep study on them, speaking again about this sleep state misperception issue, and they fill out a questionnaire at the end of the study. And they say, it took me two hours to fall asleep. I woke up 25 times during the night, and I slept a total of 60 minutes max. And when you look at the sleep study, which they can't fudge, they fell asleep in three minutes, they slept for seven hours, and they never awakened at all during the night. And so you have a very clear-cut answer to that. And it's, that's an extremely difficult process to treat because they obviously have no insight into it. My personal thought is that we all wake up at night, and we open our eyes, and we go back to sleep, and we don't think anything of it. For some right. reason, those people are hyper-acute the awakening aspect and think that they're up all night because they've awakened at some point Mm -hmm. and just simply forget that they were asleep. So I hear that not uncommonly. And then, you know, a lot of times um, the other thing will be is that there's there's just a clear-cut situational event that triggered the sleep issue, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, I saw a patient this morning who told me she hasn't slept well since December 16th. Well, you have a pretty good idea what's going on there. <laughs> there Something happened event. on December 16th or December 15th. In right, her case, right. it, it actually happened a little bit before that, but... Right. But, you know... Precipitating emotional event of some sure, kind. Sure, right. sure, sure. So there's a huge, you know, there's a huge overlap, I think, between sleep pathology and the psychiatric world. Right. Huge, huge overlap. Um, and, and so we look to partner with that field 
frequently. Yeah, I was going to say. And we need a lot of help from our psychologists, psychiatrists, because uh, a lot of this revolves around that. Yeah, I was going to suppose you were probably cross-referring on a regular basis because it would seem that, based on what you're saying, a lot of the time a person who is having disrupted sleep patterns, it turns out that it's an anxiety or an emotional-related issue more so than some sort of uh, medical... Uh, issue or chemical issue, whether it's brain or whether it's a physical structure kind of issue that needs to be corrected uh, either by CPAP or some other measure, surgery, um, to get them fixed. Right. Interestingly, I, I think that's that occurs at the outset. What happens is that as this goes on, this now becomes a chicken or egg phenomenon, Right. which is, you don't understand, Doc, I was perfectly fine until I didn't sleep well, and now I'm depressed, now I'm anxious. Right rather than did the anxiety and the depression trigger the inability to sleep. And again, it, that takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to untangle and to get insight, both for me, to make sure I'm not making a mistake, and for the patient to understand what was chicken and what was egg, mm-hmm. you know, which begat the other. Right. You know, what what number of people out there, because, I mean, we talked about the fact kind of early on in the show, I'm talking with Dr. Robert Albin, sleep medicine specialist, but what do you have an idea or an approximation? I mean, obviously, it would be a guess since they're undiagnosed, but my question is going to be, out of those people that we suppose uh, that 35 to 40 maybe conservative percent of, of our population that have some sort of sleep problems, what number of people are roughly estimated to be as yet undiagnosed. The, the, you, you talked about the person that I haven't slept well in a long time. Is it my caffeine? Is it this? Is it this? And they've done some measure of problem solving, and then ultimately they came to you. But it would seem to me that the people that we could potentially really help are folks that if if you're dealing with this sort of symptom, whether you know the typically going to be kind of a vague or generalized, less maybe not necessarily glaring kind of set of problems that they don't realize that, hey, it's related to your sleep and and your quality of sleep. And that's what's driving this. And that's why you're at risk for some of these other things, because they don't know to come to you. When, you know, do we have, is there a lot of people out there that are dealing with a sleep deprivation type issue related to either anxiety or some sort of medical problem that could be corrected that they don't realize that they need your kind of help. Right. I don't think or I don't know of that particular statistic, but I have no doubt that we're treating the tip of the iceberg. Mm-hmm. You know, it's always the big chunk that's under the water, and I think that's where we are in the sleep medicine world. Now, having said that, we're much farther along today than we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago because everyone now seems to have heard of sleep doctors and people have heard about sleep apnea. It's been popularized. It's in mainstream media. So people are starting to understand about that. We also have a lot of stigma. You know, people don't want to concede that they have a sleep problem. People don't want to admit that they're tired during the day. We're a very driven society. People are working around the clock. You take your iPad. You take sorry for the plug. You take your your tablet <laughs> home all the time here. What are you talking about? Take your about? tablet home. You take um, <laughs> you know you have your email. You're doing your work. Your spreadsheet. So we never stop, which also is a, you know a horrible habit. But um, the percent of and and we can go through other things. You know, 
the you know incidence of men who snore is X percent. You know, we can talk about 50 percent of men in middle age may snore. Ironically and interestingly, the incidence of women who snore is zero. There's never been a woman of course yet not. who's uh, That's been acknowledged. That's because they have light purrs. That's it. That's it. So women don't snore. Oh. So, but, but people don't want to see a doctor if their bed partner tells them that they're snoring. Right. So there's a lot of failure. You know, I don't, it's embarrassing. I don't want to go there and, and uh, you know, talk about snoring. Um, you know, but if we talk about things like that, you know, people avoid social situations. People say, I can't really go on a trip. I can't go out of town with my spouse because we have to share a hotel room and I can't sleep with him or her in that room. Right, and right. when we're at home, yep. we can stay in yeah, separate can, bedrooms yeah, and we're fine. Can so it, so yeah. it, all of a sudden it affects your whole life. So, yeah, we're not touching a lot of the people who should be touched. Now, there's also a lot of greater recognition. A lot of the individuals who may put other individuals at risk, truck drivers, pilots, Bus drivers, people who are employed in that industry, the Department of Transportation has really stepped up their game in terms of trying to screen for individuals who may have sleep pathology, because obviously if you're a bus driver and you've got 55 people behind you, you don't want to be falling asleep if you're a plane pilot, etc. Um, so, so while we are just really touching the tip of the iceberg as far as the numbers of individuals that we're seeing, we are getting better known, we being the sleep medicine field, we are getting better known, and more people are coming to our attention. Do you have some kind of general recommendations? If, if you're dealing with some disrupted sleep patterns or you're having this set of, you're noticing this set of symptoms, you should probably be seen by a sleep specialist just to rule out some kind of pathology that could be corrected or behavioral things that could be potentially corrected so that, you know, we can avoid some of those situations or someone's work performance, for example, could be affected, things like that. Do you have kind of a you know, base recommendation. If you're dealing with this for this kind of period of time, I would recommend at least a base interview with a sleep specialist. Sure. And I think that the word you just used, interview, helps me a lot. So I'll go back again to the bed partner. Ask your bed partner, you know, am I snoring? Do I stop breathing at night? Ask yourself, when I wake up in the morning, do I feel like I've slept or do I feel awful? If you find that you are you know, mid, midway through your workday, you're just not able to focus, you're not able to stay awake, you fo you're shutting the door to your office, you've got to, you know, you just can't function. That's not normal. Um, less subtle things. Um, we now know that there's an associate, we, we've already alluded to the fact that individuals who are carrying excess weight may be at higher risk for sleep apnea. We also know that untreated sleep apnea patients don't lose weight effectively. So there's the flip side to that. So if you've not been successful, having a lot of trouble losing weight, A, you're at risk for that, for sleep apnea, and B, when you get treated for it, frequently it's, it's more successful in terms of your ability to lose weight. Certainly falling asleep inappropriately for a teenager, say, disattentiveness in classrooms. So I see a lot of individuals in their late 20s to early 30s who've been diagnosed as attention deficit disorder. Right. And in fact, they have narcolepsy. Now, for them, they were fortunate in that the medications for attention deficit disorder treats narcolepsy. So while they carried the wrong diagnosis, they had pretty <laughs> successful treatment. It just yeah, is very fortunate. <laughs> well, yes. it's interesting because both of those yeah. diseases are seen in a similar demographic. Right. So it's not, 
it, it's not anyone's fault, but the usual knee-jerk response is to say that someone has attention deficit disorder. So other things that we see, we've talked about sort of difficult to manage hypertension, enlarged neck circumference as a trigger to possible sleep uh, pathology, um, a bed partner who says, you know, you're thrashing, flailing, kicking. Those are all things that could still trigger uh, or, you know, a referral or a suggestion that there may be underlying sleep disorder. So if I've gone through the process, I've realized that I'm tired all the time or whatever the case may be, I don't feel rested when I wake up in the morning. The, the set of, of symptoms we kind of covered a little bit, when, when I'm that person and I've now sought you out, um, what's my treatment? How do, you, how do you fix me? So uh, fixing not as a neutering, right? That's right. Yeah, because Hopefully. I don't do that. You know, you'll not have to get today. the urologist I'm, there. Right. I'm not there yet. <laughs> um, so in, in terms of uh, management, again, we go back to just sort of seeing the patient for the first time, right? having them come on in, seeing them, doing a history and a physical examination. At that point, making this determination as to whether or not a sleep study is indicated. Mm-hmm. Um, if there's a sleep study, we have sort of underneath that, we have multiple types of sleep studies that can be ordered. And so part of my job is to determine what sleep study or series of sleep studies should be obtained in order to arrive at the diagnosis. So, and then once we have the information, then it's assimilating that information. Does it clinically fit with what the patient presented? And then as far as treatment, treatment really depends upon what we're doing. If it's sleep apnea, treatment options can range from what we call positional therapy, just people change lay on your side get off your, your back you know that's taking the elbow in the ribs and rolling yeah. up on your side and uh, your face no one's ever it's such a bummer. no one's ever heard that one right my wife gets to sleep on her back and i just there it I is. don't get that luxury um you know there there's an what we call an oral appliance a device made by a dentist that thrusts the mandible a lower jaw outward which opens up the back of the throat which helps to open up the airway and eliminate snoring there are surgical interventions that can Again, open up the back of the throat and make sure air passes better. And then we have CPAP. So those are just some of the things, say, if you had um, sleep apnea, if you had insomnia, a lot of that, again, falls along the cognitive spectrum of therapy. A lot of that I have to ask for my colleagues' help because I am not expert at treating mood disorders. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that, whether it's the anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's combinations therein, really require the assistance of someone else to help me out with that. If there are individuals who have restless legs and that's disturbing their sleep, then we have certain laboratory tests that we look for. One of the common things being iron deficiency, which can be a cofactor in Mm. restless leg syndrome. And then we have medications that are really quite effective. If you have narcolepsy, we have strategies such as planned naps, which help if you have narcolepsy. And then we have several categories of medications that, again, are extremely effective in terms of managing the symptoms of narcolepsy. Well, let's talk about that because I'm sure that there's some measure of people that come to you that have been kind of taking care of that to some degree on their own, buying, you know, there's certain 
over-the-counter things. I know, you know, for example, the supplement melatonin, people can buy that and certainly probably overuse that and cause themselves some problems. Other sleep aids that you can purchase that don't necessarily require a prescription. Can you talk about some of those as far as value, benefit, risks of that? And then also you mentioned medications that are very effective in helping um, get you to sleep. What are the benefits and risks of those? Because, I mean, from what I understand, some of those can, you know, have some measure of risk as well. So can we talk about that? So if we're talking about medications, I think in the first part of your question, to help us fall asleep, whether it's the melatonin to try to entrain our, our sleep-wake cycle or other over-the-counter sleep aids, one of the things that I think we have to be careful about is the use of what we call a hypnotic, a sleep-inducing agent, is the use of a hypnotic when the problem isn't insomnia. So I have patients who come in, and it's very common for patients with sleep apnea to say they have insomnia. I go to sleep, I wake up, I go back to sleep, I wake up, I can't stay asleep all night, my doctor's giving me sleeping pills, etc. Some of the medications used to treat insomnia in that instance can actually worsen sleep apnea. So while the patient's request is that I want to be able to sleep through the night and their doctor prescribes them a medication to sleep through the night, that may in fact be worsening their sleep Because everything's apnea. getting that much more relaxed. Correct. Physically. So we already have a problem of obstruction <laughs> of the upper airways. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so you're more likely to obstruct your airway. Right. So I think for short-term use, the cat or dog died job loss or something that hopefully is short-term and you have a lot of stress and there is anxiety and you yeah. need to go to sleep. Something, some of the over-the-counter medications or prescription medications that help induce sleep are beneficial. But I think, again, we should aim for short-term use rather than to look at a chronic utilization of these medications. I always try to aim for the shortest period of time that we're going to use those medications. So some of the over-the-counter medications work pretty well. A lot of the Tylenol PMs, or sorry for the plug again, um, yeah, yeah, other PM medications right. all have Benadryl, Benadryl in yeah. them. And so just a little tip, when people buy Tylenol PM, they're paying you know a dollar, a dollar and a half for a tablet, which is one Tylenol and one 25-milligram Benadryl tablet, which if purchased separately at one of the large box stores Pennies. would cost a penny or two. So you don't need to buy Tylenol PM. Everything else is just effective. Those are okay for short-term use. Benadryl does put you to sleep. Sometimes it's associated with increased appetite, and a lot of people don't want to gain weight. So It gives again, me the opposite effect. Like I get very tired, but there's something with my nerves. I don't know. I haven't been to the sleep center, but it reacts We're differently. Taking reservations. All right. Yeah. We're going after the CW. <laughs> so, you know, maybe yeah. not for everyone. Right. I mean, most people do get tired, and that's why some of the older, you know, Benadryl as an antihistamine or some of the older antihistamines were not well tolerated because people became very sleepy. So histamine is a central nervous system chemical that enhances alertness. So when you take an antihistamine, mm -hmm. you not get so sleepy. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, melatonin is something that helps with individuals who have trouble falling asleep, especially individuals who may have circadian rhythm issues. They're just not getting their clock right. You know, normally as we lose sunlight during the course of the day. That's through the optic nerve. It's a pathway back to the brain that says, let's start 
secreting melatonin. Melatonin is sort of the five o'clock whistle telling the body, you know, shift over and start getting ready to relax. We're going to go to bed in, in a while. And if that doesn't happen, then melatonin can help to entrain the, the um, cycle that's going to be beneficial to try to help you fall asleep. Mm-hmm. But in terms of using medications to sleep, you know, we have a lot of good medications on the market. Companies, you know, it's a huge industry. Yeah. A lot of people spend a lot of money buying sleep aids. We are in a 24-hour society, whether you work on a sh- you know, on three shifts, you know, this country goes 24 hours a day. Yeah. We all have smartphones, we all have cable TV or um, internet TV, we watch programs day and night, we enter emails day and night, we do office work day and night, so um, we get into a lot of trouble really of our own doing in that in simpler days and in simpler times when we didn't have all these distractions, we set aside time to go to sleep. <laughs> we don't do that really anymore. Something that you said earlier that I thought was interesting, I hadn't really considered too much about it, um, was if you do physical activity, exercise, that you can actually do it too late. Surely. Um, so as I tell patients, I don't care what time you exercise as long as you don't come and tell me you can't fall asleep. So <laughs> personally, I exercise late at night, but I don't have any problems going to sleep. I see. So if so, you, so there's not a general recommendation. It's just a matter of if you find you go do your evening workout and now you can't go to sleep till. 12 or 1 o'clock for whatever. Maybe you should change the workout time. That, it's, that's, that's the way it. I look at okay. it. Um, you know, if, if, you're, if you exercise and, you know, you go to bed and your heart's pounding and you're flushed and you're still sweating and you say, I can't fall asleep, you probably <laughs> well, can't fall asleep. Yeah. But, a, but a lot of individuals do find that yeah. following a workout that they're not going to sleep. Wow. As I said, if, if you can work out, take a shower and go to bed, then great. Knock yourself out. That's fine by me. But if you can't, then you've got to figure out how many hours prior to bedtime is your cutoff to complete your exercise regimen. How often do you see someone thinking that they have a sleep disorder or problem sleeping and it's related to something like alcohol? We see, you know, certainly we see that. A lot of times it's not going to be admitted to mm-hmm. because the whole concept of, you know, how much alcohol someone drinks is not something that people readily admit to anyway. Obviously, and maybe not obviously, using alcohol to go to sleep is not a good strategy. Alcohol makes us tired, that's correct. But as we metabolize alcohol during the night after we've fallen asleep, there's a rebound phenomenon within the central nervous system that causes excitability and irritability of the central nervous system which is why individuals may wake up in the middle of the night and then have to have something to sort of get back to sleep again. Mm. So alcohol as a sleep aid is a poor long-term strategy. Yeah, I wasn't necessarily thinking about it as a sleep aid so much. As uh, <laughs> as uh, it's uh, good. <laughs> people, yeah, I think it might be easy to not realize that it can disrupt the quality mm-hmm. of your sleep because you talked about the fact right. that one of its effects is sometimes you can get sleepy when you're you know, consuming alcohol, particularly if you have more than one or two. Um, and and I, I think that uh, it might be important for people to realize that if you do consume particularly you know, moderate and above, particularly later in the night, before you go to bed, you you could actually dis- degrade the level of sleep that you're going to experience. Plus, you have a fair number of those folks who have a sleeping aid in addition. So they're taking mm-hmm. 
Alcohol is a depressant it's probably to help them go to sleep. To do that. And then you've got sleeping pills as a depressant on top of that. And then you start playing with fire and flirting with danger. Right. Um, we've been talking with sleep specialist Dr. Robert Albin, one of the physicians that uh, makes up the uh, team at Northside. And we've been learning a lot about, one, that there's a lot of people out there that deal with problems sleeping. And there's a lot of different causes that, uh, that can lead to it. Um, how often do you find that you know surgery ends up being the thing that somebody needs and ends up fixing them? Is that, t- from what I've heard, just through anecdotal interactions with people who've had a, say, a septal surgery or you know some kind of uvulectomy or, or whatever it may be, um, that it made a big difference for them? How often is is it sleep apnea versus something else like we talked about that surgery ends up being the case that fixes them? So if you, if you ask me or if you ask ask an ENT specialist on the show you may it's get different answers <laughs> surgery that's the key right you get to, if you if you're a surgeon you know you go to Midas you get a muffler you go to a surgeon you get an operation that's pretty straightforward but that being said um, I, I would say a minority very small minority of folks I send for surgery sort of as a first option now mm-hmm. some of the and I'll go back to why that is but some of the individuals who I might send off would be someone who's very young and is socially active and dating and if they had apnea and they said you know i don't really want to bring my cpap machine out on a date with yeah, me it's not a great right it's just it's just not that romantic i understand and um so i mean in those instances i think in well-selected individuals a surgical intervention may be therapeutic for them i find that if you have mild apnea or if you simply snore and don't have sleep apnea, and that's an important caveat is to understand that not everyone who snores has sleep apnea, and not everybody who has sleep apnea needs to be treated. One of the things about sleep apnea is that there are symptoms of excessive daytime sleepiness, what we call EDS associated with it. So if you had a very mild degree of apnea and really were asymptomatic and no other comorbidities, doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be treated. But if you had very mild apnea or simply snored without evidence for symptoms associated with sleep apnea, then I think surgical intervention may be a one-stop shop for you, and it may be very beneficial. In my estimation, individuals with moderate to severe sleep apnea, since we have no idea how much is going to be remedied by the operation. There's no way preoperatively to predict your postoperative outcome. So to go through an operation, and if anyone has been told that it's a piece of cake, it is not. Mm -hmm. Getting the back of your throat carved out as an adult is not the same as having your tonsils (laughs) out as a two-year-old. It's not just ice cream and a couple days in the hospital. It's not one scoop of ice cream and you're good to go, believe me. (laughs) Then, uh, you know, I think that going through that operation with risks of anesthesia, risks of hemorrhage, risks of infection, Mm -hmm. if you have a perfect operation, a perfect outcome, great, then that's terrific. But if you went through an operation, and then I always recommend that people have a follow-up sleep study because just because you think that you're well and fine now, that may or may not be the case. So because your snoring is less bothersome to your bed partner, if you still have sleep apnea, the end consequences, hemodynamic, cardiac, neurologic, cerebrovascular consequences are still there. Mm-hmm. And so you went through this entire procedure, but guess what? You still need CPAP. So 
um, I'm carefully I'm careful about selecting individuals for for surgery, but mm-hmm. it's very few that I actually see. And and probably the flip side is the much more common scenario: individuals who've had surgery and then come to me and say, "My spouse is telling me <laughs> that I'm awful <laughs> at night. I, I'm not better. I'm um, not better." <laughs> so you're you're the sleep expert. So now I have the chance to ask about these things and. Uh, that obviously there's clearly some money to be made behind them, so that's driving some of the attention to it. But things I'm hearing about are the implantable device that causes, creates a little bit of a stimulation there that keeps the muscles that can control those structures that end up blocking um, our, our, our breathing uh, just enough to keep it from doing that. Have you found, are those worthwhile uh, efforts because they you know obviously with the advertisers are saying oh don't don't mess with CPAP and the noisy machine just get this implant I when I hear that I'm like man that just seems like a seems like a a, a long way to go but d- is that effective is that something that uh, that you that you've seen in in your experience or or no what what's the value of that on the early goings so certainly there's a huge marketing campaign mm-hmm. for that I have not seen anyone who has actually had that? So, you talk about the implant. <laughs> that interestingly enough, is indicative to me. <laughs> uh, it's interesting that you you know, there's very little mention about what's involved. They just yeah. say throw away your CPAP. Yeah, yeah. You don't need CPAP. <laughs> this is you know, it's a surgical procedure. <laughs> when they you know, put they the have little to put guy a with the lungs yeah. turned to the side, I'm like, uh, that looks a little more involved than they're ad- talking about in the ad. Yeah. So <laughs> so you know, and then you've got to run electrode to the base yeah. of the tongue. Yeah. Uh, it's my understanding as to how that works. So it's sort of that or a CPAP mask. Um, you know, it's a, you make the choice. But it comes across as a no-brainer in the advertisement, which sure. is just, you know, CPAP's ugly, CPAP's uh, intrusive, yeah. CPAP is bulky. Right. Why would you do that when we have this piece of cake remedy for it? Right. I think this is a good marketing campaign. I don't know if the answer is in on that. And again, I... I'm always into non-invasive procedures well before I'm going to advocate invasive procedures. Now, I'm sure that um, they're not, <laughs> and I'm not trying to say that they are um, on the level of a sleep study, but another thing that uh, seems to be trying to dip into my wallet is a bed that can tell me, oh, you were sleeping great. You need to you know, keep things where they are. No, you need, to, you need a bigger number, um, <clears throat> whatever so the case speak, may be. Yeah. Yes, or, or you know, obviously now there's even wearables that will supposedly give you a measure of how well you're sleeping. Are those things giving you any useful information, or are they blowing smoke? Are they giving me useful information, or are they giving you <laughs> useful information? That's the question. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's interesting, the Fitbits, uh, to name one, and some of the other uh, programs. Yeah, so there's you, apps, the apps on your yeah, iPhone. You have yeah. the app, and you just put the app next to you in bed, mm-hmm. and you and your app sleep together that night. Um, <laughs> you get that radiation I don't know, maybe it's an inflatable long. app in That's the future. Awesome. We don't know, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, it is what it's going to be, which is probably some type of very crude marker of about how you're sleeping. In fact, there was... My wife, before I went on the air, called me that she had seen something on Good Morning America where Stanford Sleep Center had done a study looking at a sleep study, (laughs) a formal sleep study on an individual in bed, and then there were some of the wearables and other applications, and the essence was that it was going to look at the number of awakenings at night. So there were three competitors and then an actual sleep study. The actual sleep study said the individual awakened 25 times during the course of that sleep study that night. One of the 
monitors, the, the wearables or the app on the smartphone, came up with three. One came up with one, and the third one came up with zero awakenings. Mm. So they are by no means a substitute for a sleep study. Basically, what it is trying to measure is movement versus lying relatively still. The premise being if I'm If you're thrashing around, around you're probably not sleeping. Yeah. If you haven't moved in an hour, you're probably sound asleep. <laughs> I mean, that's it. Yeah. I mean, so it's, it's relatively straightforward, and that we call actigraphy. That's sort of our word for that. But that's the basics of it. I think it's less useful to try to tell me, you know, how many deep sleep cycles I was in, how many this, how many that. Yeah. Um, I think it's fine if you don't really have a sleep disorder and if it's sort of an intellectual curiosity thing. Mm -hmm. I think if you're going to diagnose your own sleep pathology, it probably is not terribly useful. Yeah, because I mean, that, and that's one of the reasons why I even wanted to mention something like that because obviously uh, the advertisers kind of like to put out there that, you know, you can diagnose your sleep and all you got to do is dial a number or do this or do that and, and your sleep is going to get better. Uh, meanwhile, you've paid an exorbitant amount of money for a mattress, you know, that you could have purchased a good physician-recommended type of mattress uh, that someone would uh, have a reasonable expectation they could sleep well on. And, and on that note, how, how you know, do you have recommendations for the listener out there as it relates to mattresses? How so, important is that? So I just realized you were going there, which I didn't want you to go to. Oh, well, I, that's I, fine. We can digress. <laughs> no, we don't have to. So, I, I mean, I, I just thought it would be an important component, but if not, let, let's, CW let's go off. the dark waters. Way to go. This interview is over. We're out of here. That's why my eyes rolled. So I, I don't make mattress recommendations because no. I think it's sort of like, you know, sweaters and shirts and shoes. Everybody likes different things. So, um, you know, I may like a very firm mattress to sleep on. Other folks may sleep very poorly on a firm mattress. So, so it's I don't, really just a matter of... I if think you, you have to find a mattress that's comfortable for you. Right. You know, if you wake up in the morning, you're stiff, sore, and you feel miserable, your neck hurts, and you slept poorly, then probably you're not optimized as far as your sleeping environment. Um, but I think, you know, that's the sort of expression. That's why there's horse races. You know, there are soft mattresses. There are firm mattresses. There sure. Are, different types of pillows, et cetera. There's sleep numbers. There's raisable. There's non-adjustable beds. So I don't really make a recommendation as far as a mattress. I just tell people, and, and that gets into a whole concept, which I think is, is a, an important one, which we call sleep hygiene, which is making the sleep environment right. as perfect as possible. And that's why I would mention that, not so much right. to, to, to prop a, a mattress of a type or over another, but is there thought that this type of environment, as you frame it, and I think that that's a good way to put it, um, is better or more conducive than some others? Well, there's certainly things that we can do that make sleep more likely to be successful and things that we can do that are that are bad. You know, so there, you know, there are things such as noise, temperature, light. Those things can all distract us and make it difficult for us to go to sleep. We also advocate for people to try to maintain a relatively regular sleep-wake cycle. Try to go to bed around the same time every night. Try to wake up about the same time every night. Weekends, weekdays, work days, non-work days. Try to maintain that because you're, you know, we're we're all about cycles. You know, we have a 24-hour cycle. Women have a monthly cycle. I mean, there's internal biorhythms. We're, all, we're, we're just loaded with internal clocks. And so right. we get out of sync if we start fooling around with our bedtime. Again, going back to the college student. If you have an 8 o'clock class Monday through Friday, you're going to bed midnight or 1 o'clock, and you're getting up for 8 o'clock class. Friday night, you go to bed at 4 in the morning. Saturday, you go to bed at 5 in the morning. 
and then you can't wake up Monday because of that. So trying to establish a good sleep-wake cycle. I mean, another thing that I see fairly frequently are you know, our pets, right? Where do the pets sleep? <laughs> oh, and I'm as guilty gosh, of that as anybody. I've got a new 95-pound Dawson <laughs> yeah, yeah. mix, 50-pound right. basset. My right. um, was jumping on my pillow. How much sleep do I need? I mean, when do I start actually getting into a deficit that then causes its own measure of problems? So you can look at statistics and come up with an average and probably somewhere between seven and a half, seven to seven and a half hours of sleep, people sort of say is, quote, what you need. I, I think that that's not all that useful. I think, again, we go back to individual needs. If you look at the year 1900, people slept about 10 to 11 hours because- Oh, let's go back in time. We can. I'm saying. You know, <laughs> because they're, you know, there, there weren't electric lights. There wasn't the internet. There wasn't cable TV. There wasn't. You got up when it was you light. You went to day, bed. And you were you tired. Hard. You were tired, <laughs> and you had no trouble falling asleep. They didn't have any sleep doctors because they didn't need sleep doctors probably then. Um, so, I like to talk about how many hours of sleep does it take to make you as functional as you believe you should be during the day. Mm. To me, that's the better reference point to how much sleep do I need. Just like, you know, people are five foot five and people are six foot nine. They're all within a normal span. We see people at all those heights. So we can come up with an average or guess at an average. But I think there are people who sleep five hours and they are whirlwinds. They perform wonderfully. They never have any problems. Cognitively, they're intact and they feel great. There are others who say, unless I get nine or ten hours of sleep... I'm in trouble. Mm. Interestingly, there's some studies that suggest that people who sleep excessively long actually may have higher cardiovascular mortality. Interesting. I know that I can sleep in times in the past, particularly when I used to work night shift, I ended up sleeping long, and I found that if I slept too long, I have ended up feeling more tired mm -hmm. than if I didn't sleep very long. So um, the, the rule that I've tried to follow as much as possible when possible was trying to follow that rough estimate of REM sleep being a 90-minute cycle and figuring if I stayed somewhere in a three-hour multiple, then I was probably going to be closer than not, you know, particularly if I'm over six hours, obviously. Um, but using that, trying to be as a gauge, obviously we can't control that all the time, but it seemed to work for me that if I tried to be somewhere around a three-hour cycle so that I was not waking up right in the middle, the alarm's going off when you're, you know, mm -hmm. dead to the world and slobbering on your pillow. It just seemed like that my quality of sleep was better or my, my wakefulness was better, but I guess it really doesn't matter. That no, I think, you know, I think everybody learns their own tricks, but again, I think the important thing is how am I functioning during the time that I'm supposed to be awake? If I'm not functioning well, then, and if there's a sleep problem or a sleep, an issue regarding how long am I sleeping, then you may have a problem. We've been talking uh, with Dr. Robert Albin, uh, the sleep specialist, and before we run out of time, because once again, our time has flown by, um, do you have some basic recommendations that we want to leave, whether it's a physician that's listening, that's evaluating a patient coming in with complaints, or perhaps a, a person in the community that's you know taking a listen to what you recommend as a sleep specialist, thoughts that you want to leave the listener with before we have to go? I think, you know, we've spent a lot of this hour discussing the adverse consequences of not getting a good night's sleep, whether that's because we cut into the number of hours that we sleep and we don't allow ourselves to have enough sleep, whether it's because we do things that are not conducive to sleep before it's bedtime, such as exercising, taking in caffeine, excess alcohol, et cetera, 
whether we have intrinsic sleep pathologies such as sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, narcolepsy, etc. I think the you know the I don't think anyone needs to be ashamed or embarrassed about considering whether they might have a sleep disorder. Certainly that's the first part is to recognize that maybe something isn't right. I don't not everybody seems to be as tired as I am. Why do I have no exercise? Why is it whenever someone calls me to go out, I just tell them I'm too tired and I really can't go out? That's not normal. That's not healthy. So I think recognizing that I'm not feeling as refreshed, not feeling as well as I should be, is sort of the first step. Secondarily would be, just as with any other ailment, if you thought something was wrong, you'd probably see your doctor. Um, most people have access to a sleep physician without having to jump through hoops. We're yeah, that's going to ask, do I have to get a special, or I mean a referral to see you, or do I just call your office and say, hey, I'm having trouble sleeping? Generally speaking, you'd be able to call my office, and unless we know it's you, we would schedule of an course. appointment. Right. We would if schedule we see you first, right. our office is closed. I, I have your um, name and phone number on speed dial now. <laughs> but short of that, um, you could call us directly, and, and that would work out fine. And uh, or just bring it up. Uh, you know, women go to their GYN, and women are always right. complaining that I'm, you know, I can't fall asleep, I can't stay asleep. It's too hot. It's too cold. Yeah. My legs hurt. My legs don't hurt. So I mean, they may use their GYN as their sounding board to um, say that my sleep isn't good. Um, or when you go to your primary care doctor, just you know, why am I always tired, doc? I just always, always tired. I would assure, uh, assume that my insurance will cover m- most, if not all, of my studies and treatments that that are going to be available to me to try to evaluate my quality of sleep and and, uh, remedy if it's having problems. Insurance companies recognize sleep disorders as as an important medical condition as well they should. So generally speaking, you know, you would have the coverage for a visit to me as well as coverage for the diagnostic studies, just like you would, say, an imaging study, a CT scan or something of that nature. And again, um, whether it's a pharmacologic intervention that's required or whether it's a CPAP device, uh, insurance would help you with that typically. Each individual policies may have individual amounts that they pay, but normally that's an insurance-covered benefit for the individual. Well, I know that you have a practice to run. I know that you've taken time out of your day to join us on the radio today. So thank you very much, Dr. Albin, for sharing some excellent information. Uh, Hopefully that uh, if there's folks listening to our show today, they'll be able to uh, have a better understanding of things that they might be able to do that would help them sleep better tonight. And if not, obviously now they have access to uh, somebody that can clearly help them identify what their problem is and get them uh, back to sleeping well and being healthy as they would hope to be. So thank you very much for making time. I want to say thank you to the folks at Northside for uh, collaborating with us here on the show. It's been uh, great having the physicians from uh, the Northside team come out and share some excellent information for our listeners, both on the physician side as well as on our patients. Make sure you link up with them on their, their website, northside.com, and then you can link into all their social media. And then if you've not done so already, please link up with Top Docs on social media, both on Facebook and Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. And if you have questions for any of our guests, uh, Dr. Albin included, and you didn't get to do so during the show, tweet us or, or uh, send us some questions through Facebook. We'll be more than happy to pass them along and get your answers back. Uh, so uh, make sure that if you do have questions, we can get them answered for you. Krista Baruti, thank you for Pushing being here. Pushing your buttons. You're welcome, CW. As always, 
do that so well, I must say. Uh, for you out there listening, thank you again for making us a part of your afternoon once again. We look forward to seeing you same time, same place next week.